impossible. Somebody die, somebody kill. A lot of people are killed with the bombs and so on. I say it's normal for us. There is no need to take it seriously. Because what are you going to do? So we just ran because of war, because we just ran because of safety. So this is what was happened to me. And and when I left the country, I I left with the young kids. I didn't go with my so my parents. We were separated because you just ran and you don't. If you didn't find your child by then, then that's it. You are separated with your child. And I lived by myself um, with other kids. And in the process, we find ourselves those um, illness um, people whom we don't even know start taking care of us on the way. Um, and and we actually, it was a long journey, about a month. I think that was a month footing from South Sudan to the border of Ethiopia, to Ethiopia. And then we we went to a place called Panyandu. It was like the world is ending. You don't really know. There will be something change after this. Some lost their life. Some died on the way. Some died because of anger. There was no food. And some really fell sick on the way. And they passed away. In 1991, things got really harsh in the war between the North and the South. Everything was very damaged in the war. We left the village to go to Uganda, but I was separated from my husband when the village was attacked. We went in different directions. I didn't know where my husband was. I had the children with me, four little girls. The eldest was two years old, and the youngest was three months. The little one passed away. We buried her on the way. Three months later, two of the others passed away at the same time. There was no food, no milk. The children used to drink a lot of milk before. After two more months, we reached Uganda. I stayed in a village called Ami. The United Nations provided some help there. I was there for two years. But then the Arabs, the Sudanese army, came from Juba and attacked people in army. I had to move to a place far from it, to Labuni, also in Uganda. Then in 1996, I moved to Katuma in Kenya. It was just me and my daughter Elizabeth in Kakumba. They plan another attack. They came by army vehicles and helicopters, shooting, bombing, burning houses, and looting cows and sheep from the locals. That terrible attack made me and my family to leave 
the country heading towards Serbia. It was the time when I was separated by war with my husband and four children, two boys and two girls. Until now, I never heard about them, whether they are alive or dead. Um, school was important because back in Africa, it was hard for girls to go to school because it wasn't seen. It was important for girls in society to go to school. Girls were supposed to be the housemaids, the cleans and men were supposed to go to school and get educated. And coming to Australia and going to school, because school here in Australia is everyone has to go to school. So I found that it was important and it touched me because I got the right to go to school and it was free and it was, it was just, it was good. Being in Australia is a big life changing to me. Australia is a beautiful, kind, festival and lucky country. I thank Australia government for helping needy people all around the world. God bless Australia. Those are the voices and stories of South Sudanese Australians. My name's Jennifer Huxley, and this is episode two, Before, in the series Savannah to Suburbia, Stories of South Sudanese Australians. In episode one, we heard from women of their experiences of war, displacement and loss, of years spent in refugee camps, and of survival. In this episode, we'll talk about the historical and political background to this war. We'll hear from people who lived through the First Civil War from 1956 to 1972 and the 11 years of peace that followed until the Second Civil War broke out in 1983. Some stories have been told in other voices, where the original recordings were unclear. My love to Sudan is uncheckable. My love to you is something internal. It is born with me. It grows with me. Nothing can snatch it from me. My love to you is uncheckable. It is something in my blood, despite this long bloodshed. It is never shaken. The opposite, it is becoming stronger and stronger. It cannot be shakable by a stranger. Akol Mayan Kwol's poem is the lament of an exile for the country he loves and lost, his greater homeland, Sudan in northeast Africa. It's the fabled country of the Nubians and the ancient kingdom of Kush, and traversed by the mighty Nile River as it flows north to Egypt, where it meets the Mediterranean Sea. Both Egypt and Sudan have depended on the Nile since ancient times, with decisions in Egypt having an impact on the people of Sudan. I was born in old Sudan, during the period of the interim government for the independence of Sudan from the British, approximately 1954 to 1955. I was born in a village in Kongor Payam, in Jongle State. At that time, we called it the Upper Nile Province. In 1961 to 1962, a few years after I was born, we had to migrate from our village because of continuous flooding. This was a result of Egypt building the Aswan Dam, which created a lot of problems for people living downstream along the River Nile. The flooding was severe, and eventually created the Sud Swamp, which lies between Upper Nile and Bull. Although I was still small, I remember that we used to cross the Ural during the summer, but after those years, 
It was impossible because of flooding. It created the whole Lake Shambi. As a result of the disaster, many people moved away from the area. Some people went to Adduane, which was the capital of White Nile State, while others moved to northern Sudan. The people in my village were totally displaced and had to move to a new area. They were relocated to an area called Lith Payem, near Congo Payem. The former paramount chief, Arjang Duot, had asked the chiefs of Duk to provide my people with some land and Lithpayam had now become our new home. None of my people had been able to return to our previous land till this day, as it is still flooded. For the first half of the 20th century, Sudan was effectively under British rule as an Anglo-Egyptian condominium. 1956 brought independence, and for the first time, Sudan's ethnically and religiously diverse people were brought together under a centralised administration. But it wasn't as though the people of Sudan hadn't exercised violence before. For centuries, the South was pillaged for slaves and ivory. And the inception of Anglo-Egyptian rule in 1899 brought greater Arab penetration into southern Sudan, extending the slave trade into the Nuba Mountains and Darfur. But through all of this, the peoples of the South maintained their traditional cultures and ways of life. It's an area that's home to some 60 ethnic and linguistic groups of named tribes, clans and subclans. I was born in former Nuak, Payam, currently Twitch, East Central County. I'm AUL by section, one of the communities in Nuak County, which consists of three communities, including AUL, Aulian and Dutchwek. Before the war, the district where I was born was called Jongle in Upper Nile region, and there are a lot of small counties. They are called Payams. These communities are headed by one chief. Among these very diverse populations, there has always been competition over highly valued possessions, like cattle and other resources. Cattle raiding was a traditional source of conflict between the Dinka, Nuer and Merlay, but these conflicts were regulated by codes of dispute and warfare ethics and fought with spears, not guns. Intermarriage and adoption into each other's kinship systems also created strong links among the groups. There were also sporadic connections between the north and the south. The semi-nomadic Bagara of Kordofan and Darfur seasonally migrated into neighbouring countries, including parts of southern Sudan. Arab merchants brought their trade into the towns, and some southerners moved to places in the north, like Khartoum, to study or work. But in 1922, the British introduced their southern policy, splitting the north and the south into separate administrations and severing almost all relations between the two regions. Laws barred northern Sudanese from entering the south, and any who'd lived in the south for years were forced to leave. For southerners, travel and work in the north were prohibited. The policy curtailed the spread of Islam and the Arabic language into the south and deterred investment in the region. This served to provide some protection to the people of the south and their way of life. But in 1947, the southern policy was reversed. Arabic replaced English as the South's official administration language, and Islamization was imposed. Nor did the independence negotiations include the South or provide the promised federal system between the North and the South. The result was the development of a secessionist armed struggle. 
The first civil war between the North and the South broke out in 1955, immediately before independence. It lasted until 1972. I was born in South Sudan in Bur. This is my village in 1955. Um, my father became a minister and we came from Bor to Khartoum. And after that, I go over a lot of places. You move from place to place, from places. It's a lot. Sixty-three, I was in Juba. Uh, we've been in Juba ninety-three, ninety-four, ninety-five. The war start. This is begin when John Garang against the government. It start. When I was a small girl, I was started school. Uh, that time, the army, they can just kill the people, especially when you got girls at home and so on. They can come and take it. Even when I was in the school, they make us to learn uh, Islamic. They don't allow us to learn Christians or anything. Even me now, I know a lot of Islamic in Quran. Because if you want or not, you have to do it. Even they change my name from a book to Zahara. Because they say you are pretty and... We can't pronounce your name. You have to have Islamic name. They sh- uh, did shooting in Juba. They kill a lot of people. When you are non-Muslim, they kill you. If you are Muslim, they don't kill you. We have to run to stay with the Muslims. There is people, Muslims open their houses for people to stay with them, because if you run there to the Muslim house, no, they can't go there. They attack people in the houses. We have to run. Uh, after six, you have to stay at home. Because if any army find you on the road, they can rape you, they can take you to be a woman. If you ache, they don't care. My father was a sheep of Koch clan, Dinkabor. We were 12 children in the family. Six kills during the war, and four of us survived the war. Life was very good before the war, because my parents were both farmers. I was in Juba, the capital of South Sudan, when the war broke out in Town. The government soldiers killed many people in Town, including my parents. My father passed away a long time ago, in the war before I was born. I am a Bari, a speaker from Equatoria, Bari from Juba town. It was a very tough life growing up as an orphan without a father. There were six of us. One was my cousin, my mom's sister's daughter. My mom raised her because her sister passed away too. 
Her sister died in the village from illness. I was born in Sudan in 1961 in a village they call Wedj in Malakal. At this time, um, we left because during the first war, this time there is a war also, this time in 1950, since 1955, the war started in southern mm -hmm. Sudan since 1955. And then the situation was not good. And then my mom and my dad, they moved to northern Sudan. The Addis Ababa peace agreement between the government and the rebels was signed in 1972. The period of peace that followed allowed life to return to normal for many in the south. I was born in Jonglei State in South Sudan. That's where I was born and that's where I lived. It's actually a beautiful place. My father had a mixed farm. It had cattle and also crops, like a garden. So it was really, really good, and everything was great. I looked after the cattle, and I also helped sometimes during plantation, when people were planting and also clearing. Cattle are very important. It's actually a source of everything. We got milk from the cows, and they can also be a source of wealth. We can sell the milk, and we can get money from that. Cattle are very important for Dinka because they're actually used for marriage, used to pay dowry. We don't value money, we value cows. I had three brothers and myself, and three sisters. I'm the last born in the family. My brothers trained me on how to look after the cows and do other things, manage them. For my sisters in Dinka culture, most of the women do housekeeping, cooking, milking, and they also do a lot of farming. It was lovely, living on a farm in a remote area, seeing my father caring for me, my mother, my relatives, living a traditional life where there were no complications. It was an easy life. Although some people see rural areas as something remote, it was a very comfortable life actually at that time. It was different when I went back in 2012 to see my father in the Newak area of Wangale. It is now completely different. But life back then was a very good life. I grew up in the cattle. As I was a boy. I was born in South Sudan. It was Sudan by then, but recently, 2011, was divided into two countries. We have Sudan and South Sudan. So I was born in the, um, in the state called Pyongwale, in the village Pyom Ahol, and the town center is Wangwale. It was really... Um, Enjoyful by the time when I was very young, grew up in the um, in our own home, because my father and everybody held in the village were uh, a farmers. You grow on your crops around your house. You cultivate your old garden. You live in the um, the hut. It's a big uh, hut has to be uh, built for cattle and the other uh, small one for people to live in. So I would say a young boy looking after the cow, the young one for cattle, and later on I was involved to looking after cattle when my um, elder brother went to... Um, he went before me. 
The peace agreement also provided for the South to become a self-governing region. We, we came down to our hometown that is Bor, and uh, where I was uh, stationed there as a primary uh, school teacher for girls. And uh, I did two years. And in 74, uh, I was elected for the seat of Women Union in Upper Nile uh, to the Regional uh, Assembly in Juba. That was the time that uh, uh, Southern Sudan was given uh, uh, self-determination and have a government in Southern Sudan led by His Excellency uh, Abel Alier. And from there I was... Uh, I was in the parliament of regional assembly in in Juba uh, for four years, and in the when we were there, uh, we were three: one from Upper Nile, Greater Upper Nile, that was me. Victoria Yar was from uh, Greater Bahar Al Ghazal. Uh, she she's not there now; she passed away. And uh, Mary Besuni was from. Greater uh, Equatoria, she's not there also. Uh, and uh, we were in the assembly there, which was the first time for for Southern Sudanese women to be in the parliament. And uh, we were uh, really very uh, keen or very active uh, uh, seeing or working together to see how to uh, get the rights of women, how to begin uh, to bring up uh, uh, the women of southern Sudan. Because uh, at that time they, they, they were so very backward. They didn't know anything about uh, uh, women to be in the parliament, women to be what uh, the, the work of women at that time was the and uh, the, 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 the women to, uh, to be teachers, to be nurses, to be messengers, and, and that was uh, the, the work of women. But we tried to be there, and we talked, and we showed women uh, that uh, uh, we are also, we are equal, and we have to climb, and we have to claim, and we have to be there uh, with men, and from there, uh, we were in the parliament. Uh, the, at that time, the Addis Ababa agreement was made. Uh, the first uh, uh, Addis Ababa agreement between uh, uh, the north and the south, and this was the time that uh, the, 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 the south was given that uh, uh, local autonomy. Uh, then uh, we... When I finished the four years, the first uh, that term in the parliament, uh, we went back again in I think in 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 seventies in late seventies, and then I was elected again to the parliament. 
and uh, the same thing uh, with some different and from there uh, that time uh, the, 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 the the states or the the upper Nile was divided into two so I came from I was now coming from Jangole and then there was another Nwer woman coming from Upper Nile and we were again in the parliament still talking or still claiming or still uh, seeing that women are uh, brought up and they are in that uh, standard that we wanted. <laughs> Sadly, the peace didn't last. In 1983, the Second Civil War between the North and the South broke out. So we were there, and uh, then um, the third time I didn't make it. And uh, from that third time, that was earlier in the 80s, the the agreement was uh, cancelled by Nimeri, the president of of Sudan at that time. And... uh, uh, there was some. The, 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 it was the the whole south was divided into so many local uh, states, and uh, and earlier in eighties, uh, the southern the South Sudanese were not very happy with the government in Khartoum, and because they were. Uh, not happy with the way that things were going, the the, the 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 sharing of power, the sharing of wealth, the discrimination, and so many things. So at that time, the South Sudanese took uh, arms earlier in in eighties. That was in eighty four, eighty four years, and went to the bush. And uh, that was the start of the problem of South of, of, of South Sudan. And people went to the bush, uh, led by John Garang, Dr. John Garang. And uh, from there, uh, we were in the town at that time. And uh, because my husband was a project manager in Bo Town, and Bo Town was the the first place where the people start going to the bush and the first place where the first bullet was shot and people went away, deserted the town the one the whole night and the town was just left like that. The The battalion that was in Bo was in 105 uh, was attacked or was uh, by the government, and from there, the 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 the, the of of the of the army that was attacking Bor was uh, was killed, and uh, and people went deserted the town. 
And from there, the people who deserted the town, that was John Garang was there, was coming from Khartoum with some people. That was Carbino. Carbino was shot also. That was the head of the battalion of five. Was shot and was not, uh, he didn't die. Was taken by the people. And John Garang was there and a group of all the heads were there. And from there, uh, this is uh, where I was hit. And this is where my husband was killed also. When we deserted the town, uh, we took the car. And from there, we went out of the town. And we fall into the ambush where uh, he was killed. And I was shot on my, on my hip. And one of my daughters was also Kill at that time. Uh, she was she was she was big. She was a, a woman. Uh, she was about twenty four. I left my motherland, South Sudan. That was because of the attack planned by Khartoum government to come and kill whoever refused to be Muslim because they were forcing Sharia law to be implemented in the whole country of Sudan. The attack was on 16 of May, 1983, at 5 a.m. It was a big shocking to the town. The, sh the shelling began at airport until it reached Old Town. I tried to hide under the bed with my children, but the shooting became closer, and they started raping women, looting people, belongings. These are just two of the accounts of what happened to people in the Second Civil War. The next episodes will focus on more of those personal stories of danger, displacement and deaths, and of the resilience of people surviving. I'm Jennifer Huxley, and this is Episode 2 of Savannah to Suburbia, South Sudanese Australian Stories. In the next episode, we'll hear stories from the lost boys, the children who are forced to flee into the bush without their families and who survived the terrors of wild animals, crocodile-infested rivers, hunger and endless walking between temporary places of fragile safety. Thank you to Akol Mayan Kual for permission to use his poem My Love to Sudan is Unshakeable from his collection The Last Train, and to Ajak Kwai for permission to use songs from her album Of Cows, Women and War. We acknowledge Germa Kaberde's 1997 paper, The North-South Conflict in Historical Perspective, as a source for this episode. For further information about the series and full source references, or to contact us or subscribe for free to the series, go to morningsidesoundproductions.com, or you can access the podcasts from your usual source. <laughs> Go!
Abilo, Abilo, 